Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship you. And Lord, it is our prayer that you would be pleased with that which falls from our lips because our hearts um, are in tune with you. Lord God, as we look at your word this morning, as we dive deep into some truths that uh, will challenge us, no doubt. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide, that you would equip us and enable us and strengthen us, uh, that we might be about your business in this world, that we would be on mission with you. And Father, I ask that you would strengthen me this morning as uh, I bring this word Lord, uh, help me to get out of the way. Uh, speak to us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I need your help this morning. I want you to help me complete these phrases. Now, you don't have to think too long and hard about them. And I will tell you this, the longer you have been a part of the church or been walking with Jesus, the easier these things should be. So just nice and loud, God helps those who… God won't give you more than let go and… You guys are really good. God causes all things to… No sin is worse than… That one's a little tougher. Anybody take a venture? Any other? Any other? And when God closes a door, He opens a new one or opens a window or something like that. Yeah. So you guys got it down. You've been around a while. You, you've heard these things. Maybe you've said them yourselves. I, I know that I have. But um, a few years ago, uh, I preached a series called Twisted Scripture. How many of you guys were around for that? Okay. We, um, we took a look at some uh, Bible verses that are very popular, that are often misquoted, mainly because they're taken out of context. And this morning, we're beginning a, a new series uh, in a similar vein, based on the book Unquestioned Answers by Jeff Myers, who is from Summit Ministries. And yes, you heard that right, not unanswered questions, but unquestioned answers. See, Christians have a plethora of cliches or sayings that we often repeat without thinking about them, at least not very deeply. And these cliches are simplistic responses to complex questions. And uh, the author refers to this as simplicism. It's a term I believe he coined, and he says there's a difference between simplicity and simplicism. In fact, the New Oxford American Dictionary defines simplicity as the quality or condition of being easy to understand or to do. Now, I, for one, am all for simplicity. 
I, I like things to be simple. I don't like things to be complex. After all, who wants life to be complicated? And even our relationship with Christ should not be complicated. I like what Paul says when he wrote to the Corinthians. He says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray, listen, from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Sometimes we just make the Christian life far too complicated than it needs to be. There is a simplicity in our relationship with Christ. So simplifying things to enjoy life and our relationships um, is a good thing. Simplifying things so that we can better understand, remember, and even uh, communicate truth to others is a worthwhile pursuit. But according to Myers, simplicism stops us from thinking altogether. It distorts simplicity into a conviction that something isn't really true unless it is easy to understand and summarize. But folks, in case you haven't figured it out yet, everything is not easy to understand. Everything is not easy to summarize. As much as we would love to reduce things in, a, in such a way that, that the most difficult pressing questions facing us in life can be answered with a 30-second blurb, that is not how life works. Sometimes quoting a Bible verse, especially one out of context, or giving a, a trite, glib saying or overused response, that can do more harm than good. Reducing complex, difficult questions to a series of bumper stickers, slogans, or memes does not help us continue the conversation or engage people in discussion. We do a disservice to others when we do that, and we do a disservice to ourselves as well. Oftentimes, the very people who give these trite cliches they're really masking their own insecurities, their own doubts, their own fears, and oftentimes they're trying to convince themselves that what they're saying is true. Myers says this in his book, unquestioned answers are the way simplicism banishes doubt. They're the trite slogans and cliches we devise to simultaneously avoid deep thinking and shield our opinions from outside criticism. On the surface, unquestioned answers seem to offer confidence, but in the end, they confuse and isolate us. So in this series, we're going to examine uh, four unquestioned answers. I would love to do more. The more I've been thinking about this, the more unquestioned answers uh, I, I come up with. But we're going to look at, at four of them, including you just got to have faith. Or it's just me and Jesus, and it's not my place to judge. 
Those are three of the four we're going to look at. And by the way, in case you're, you're interested, this would be a great time to plug into a life group because our life group is going to be discussing this. Many of our folks have actually purchased the book. So if you'd like to, to join in on that, uh, stop by the hub afterwards. We'd love to tell you what groups are, are open and available. And then you can purchase the book, read it for yourself. Uh, Unquestioned Answers by Jeff Myers. So the purpose for this short mini-series is to actually rediscover the, the biblical truths that lie beneath these cliches. And we want to do so so that we can better understand God's Word, so that we would grow in our faith and be more effective in communicating the gospel to others. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the oft-repeated cliché Love the sinner, hate the sin. Or, as we often have heard, God loves the sinner but hates their sin. And I think I'm leading off with this one because I think in light of political correctness, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin has become the standard response of Christians when confronted with issues like homosexuality or gay marriage or any other uh, thing that you can think of right now. And um, Meyer says in his book that, to be fair, many people say, I love you, but hate your sin as a way to express Christ's grace without demeaning the seriousness of sin. Separating the sin from the person makes it seem as if our judgments are less judgmental. We're going to talk a little bit about that, dig a little bit deeper there. But the bottom line is in our day and age, we don't want to come across as judgmental. We don't want somebody to pin that label on us. So we avoid it at all costs. And this is one way that we think we can communicate love for the sinner at the same time maintaining our stand on biblical truth. Another reason I think we use this phrase is I think many of us think that God has a PR problem. That we have to help God out because we want people to see God as loving, right? We don't want people to see him as a holy, wrathful, vengeful God. I, that doesn't sell, right? And if we want people to make a decision, decision for Jesus, we dress it up. We dress up the gospel, we, we omit or at least de-emphasize things like sin and judgment and hell, and we emphasize things like love and mercy and grace. But that's just a half-truth. That's, that's why um, I loved last week when Scott was talking uh, about sin and the presentation of the gospel. I said, man, that's, that's right up my alley because... Because we cannot appreciate the good news until we understand the bad news. And the bad news is far worse than we ever thought. And, and this, this morning, I, I just felt like, Scott, thank you for setting me up. But I'm going to be taking it a step further, um, as you will soon see. But we try to make God look more attractive. But I, I, I got to tell you, God doesn't have a PR problem. 
We don't have to worry about trying to make God look good. The truth is we have a sin problem. That's the real problem. And unless we repent, Scripture says we will perish. when, when, When we omit talking about sin, when we omit talking about the holiness of God and our need to to turn from our sin and embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, we actually distort the gospel. We make it all about us. It becomes a very man-centered gospel. It's as if we're saying to people, hey, come to Jesus. He loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. He'll give you peace and joy and happiness and love and heaven to boot. And there, there's truth in that statement. But what we end up doing inadvertently is we basically are communicating to people, come to Jesus because of what he can do for you. Look at all the things that you can get from God that you really want, even if you don't know you want it. But that's really not why we come to Jesus. Now, God will use those things. He will use our loneliness. He will use our pain. He will use anything and everything in order to get us to him. But we need to be careful that 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 is not our primary motive for coming to God. God is willing to bestow his blessings upon us, but we ought not come to God simply to get stuff from God. In fact, Bible tells us we come to God because he commands us to repent and believe, and if we don't, we perish. We come to God because there is no other hope. All those who refuse to repent and trust in Christ as unpopular as this is in our day and age, will suffer in an eternity separated from God in hell. The gospel is bad news before it's good news. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to show that love the sinner, hate the sin, is neither biblical or beneficial. Now, Christian cliches like this have been repeated without ever asking, is it biblical? I mean, it sounds so right, right? Love love the sinner, hate the sin. I mean, how can you argue against that? Well, I think sometimes we, we, we believe they're true because we want them to be true. We use these axioms without really thinking, at least not deeply, again. So, here we go. Buckle up. I'm going to give a disclaimer first. Warning, the following verses may be hazardous to your concept of God. The speaker takes no responsibility for your discomfort. With that being said, let's turn to Psalm chapter 5. The psalmist writes, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 11, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. 
Psalm 106. The people became unholy by their sins. They were unfaithful to God in what they did. So the Lord became angry with his people and hated his own children. Now, I don't know if you listened or looked at those verses very carefully. And it is true that God hates sin. But as you can see from Scripture, He also hates sinners. In the first 50 Psalms alone, we have more than a dozen references to God hating sinners and His wrath being poured out on them. Now, lest you think that this is merely an Old Testament thing, it's also seen in the New Testament in various ways. In John chapter 3, we read, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, if you have your pens or whatever, you might want to underline the last two words, on him. You see, God's wrath is not against sin, it's against the sinner. God's wrath rests on him. God does not punish sin, he punishes the sinner. This is an important distinction to make. People go to hell, not our sin. God doesn't separate sin from the sinner and throw sin in hell. He throws the sinner in hell. Now, there, there are so many verses. I, I even was adding things um, as, as I was going through. I might share one or two more with you. But just here's one of them. It's in Revelation chapter 21. Listen for the descriptors. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Do you, do you see, God is describing people He's not talking about things. Sin is not some moral entity that's like sitting on the street corner waiting to be picked up. It's not like a piece of gum laying on the street that when you step on it, it sticks to your foot and somehow, you know, just, you know, you got to now, you got to live with it. It's, it's not goo that gets stuck to you that needs to be separated. It is a part of who we are. God hates the wicked, not just their sin. You can read about it, Hosea 9, verse 15, or in James 4, 4, where, 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 where James writes, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. An enemy of God. 
Now, right now, I know what some of you are thinking. So, Paul, this sounds like heresy. I mean, what about John 3.16? Right? For God so loved the world. How can God hate the sinner and love him at the same time? And, and, and if God hates sinners, why does he command us to love our enemies? You see how this is a complex question that you can't answer with a little slogan or meme or cliche? Now, listen, listen to me. God's attributes are not weighted differently. I mean, some people will go so far as to say that, well, you know, all those Old Testament verses, that was the Old Testament God. The New Testament God is a God of love. And I'm thinking, we don't have two gods here. We have one God, and he, he's the same in the New Testament as he was in the Old Testament. In fact, if you look back in the Old Testament, you will find God is loving and gracious and kind and forgiving, just like you do in the New Testament. And if you look at the New Testament, you're going to find out he's just as holy, just as righteous, just as vehemently against sin and hateful of sinful acts and sinners in the New Testament as he is in the Old Testament. He is not more loving than he is holy. He is not more merciful than he is just. But neither is he more holy and just than he is loving and merciful. All of God's attributes are equal. And, catch this, they're equal at the same time. Meaning, God is not just today and tomorrow he's merciful. His attributes are equal at the same time, which is unbelievable when you think about it, but it's, it's true. God is love, but he is also altogether holy. I like what John Piper says about, about this God that we're describing here. I've got it up on screen. He says, if we don't understand that God finds us hateful and loathsome in our ugly sin, we won't be as stunned by what his love is for us. God comes to us, not in our attractiveness like, oh, I really love this person and just hate their sin. No, he finds me reprehensible because of my rebellion. Just like we find certain wicked people reprehensible because of their sin. And he is coming to us and he is dying for us in order that he might make us into the apple of his eye. So God can love us with the intent to save us even while he is hating God-despised rebels like us. And then when he saves us, he transforms us so that now he not only loves us with the intent to bless us forever, but he loves us with an ever-increasing delight. Now, I have to confess to you, I don't fully understand this. But I also need to let you know there's a lot of things that I don't understand that I believe. I don't understand how God created the world by speaking it into existence. I don't understand the virgin birth. I don't understand the Trinity. 
how there can be one God and three persons. But that is what Scripture teaches. I, I don't fully understand it. I may never be able to unravel this paradox, but I know that it's consistent with Scripture and reason. And I think one of the most beautiful things, and maybe this is the one thing that you need to take away to help you reconcile these two things, is that it was at the cross where God's holiness and justice and righteousness and wrath met his love and mercy and kindness and grace. That God dealt with sin and the sinner at the cross. Justice was melted out, was, was dealt out so that we could be set free. Now, I'm going to say something else that may seem at first heretical. God does not hate, nor will he punish every sinner. I'm just waiting to see the looks on your faces. He does not hate nor will he punish every sinner. Only those who refuse to repent and turn to him for salvation. Do you see the difference? We are all sinners. The only question is which kind? Are we the repentant kind or the unrepentant kind? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All those who believe, that is all those who have been born again, have been saved by God's wrath and they have passed from death to life. And all saved sinners will enjoy the blessings of heaven for all eternity as beloved children of God. Salvation was made possible at the cross, but not everyone is saved. We have to repent of our sins, and we have to trust in Christ as the only remedy for our sins. He died on the cross in our place. God took, or Jesus took, the Father's holy hatred of sin and the sinner upon himself so that his wrath would not have to be poured out on us. That's where John 3, 16, sometimes we forget, so that we should not perish. We don't have to perish. We don't have to spend eternity separated from God. He has made it possible for us to be saved. And we, we've got to be very careful here. You say, well, Paul, why even go there with this? It's because we, we have to be very careful not to perceive sin as something external to us, something that's out there that invades our life. It is something that is internal. We call it the sinful nature. We were born with it. We are not sinners 
Because at some point in time in your life, when you were two, three, or four, whatever, you sinned. Rather, you sin because you're a sinner. It's in your nature. It's in my nature. A well-known pastor echoes these sentiments when he says, when we see God's holy hatred of sin and holy judgment of sin, we must be careful not to think that it's something outside of us. Sin is a part of who we are. It is who we are. We are sinful, rebellious men and women against the holy God. Sin is ingrained into who we are. We see God's holy hatred do sin and his holy judgment do sin. Yes, that rests upon sin, but not as as if it were something outside of us. It is not though his wrath and judgment are simply against what we do, whether it be lust, lying, or cheating. We are sinners at the core of our very being. And God's holy hatred of sin, therefore, rests on the sinner. Something else that may help you here is that because God's disposition towards saved sinners is not the same as the disposition he has towards unsaved sinners, it's probably best that we refer to, to the unsaved sinner as Scripture often does and refers to them as the wicked is the wicked or the unrepentant wicked because God's disposition changes towards those who repent and receive Christ. We become children of God, beloved children of God. Now, pastor and author Tim Challies offers three reasons why God hates the wicked. There's probably more. But he says this, that God hates the wicked because their wickedness is first a mark of the deepest rebellion against him and against his rule. God hates those who express their hatred towards him. God also hates the wicked because their wickedness is expressed in ways that harm the people that he created in his image. And God hates the wicked because their wickedness is expressed particularly against God's elect, his children. Wicked people turn their fury against God's people, mocking them, persecuting them, putting them to death. So love the sinner, hate the sin may sound like a loving way to talk to somebody about sin, but it's really not biblical. I like what Dr. Stephen Nichols um, said from a legionnaire. He says, when we slip into these kinds of statements, we think we're doing God a favor, but we're not doing sinners a favor because we're not helping them see the wrath of God or what that means. And until they see that, they don't see their true need for a substitute. And they don't fully understand what Christ was doing on the cross. So sometimes we have to be careful about how we want to help 
God's PR. Now, the flip side of that is this, and I caution you. The next time you have a conversation with an unsaved friend, family member, or neighbor, I don't suggest you lead off with, hey, you know, like, Jared, I don't know if you know this or not, but God hates you. God hates sinners. You're a sinner. He hates you. But, but despite your wickedness, I love you anyway, okay? That's not going to go over too well. That's not how you influence people, win friends, okay? So you don't do that. There are some truths that are meant for us to understand that help us inform how we communicate with others. But you don't lay it on somebody who has no spiritual understanding whatsoever, We need God's wisdom to know how to communicate. So not only is love the sinner, hate the sin not biblical, it's not beneficial. When we tell people that God loves them but hates their sin, many times the only thing they hear is what follows the word but. They just hear the word hate. And you're at an impasse. Myers says that love the sinner, hate the sin is phrasing akin to a spiritual hit and run. When we apply it to other sins like lying and pride, it's easy to see, right? I love you, but I hate that you're a liar. Or I love you, but I hate that you're a self-centered jerk, right? That's, that's not cool. Another problem with using this cliche is that it has an air of superiority to it, doesn't it? I think it reveals pride in our own heart. Let me me see if I can explain. So, when we say to most people, love the sinner but hate the sin, are we not more likely to say to people whose sin is, we think, worse than ours? Or at least different. I mean, for instance, let's say you have a problem with anger. And your friend also has a problem with anger. You're not likely, you know, to have this conversation and and eventually come around and and tell him um, that God hates your anger. Because when you point your finger at somebody else, right? What did they say? You got three fingers pointing back at you. We're not going to call out, usually, the same sin in somebody else that we're committing. But we will call out the sins that we think are greater, worse than ours. That's the other danger. So there's an air of superiority where I'm not like you. I haven't committed that sin. And we love to rank sins, don't we? I like what Meyer says. He says, if we're honest, we'll realize that we're more likely to say love the sinner, hate the sin in response to sins we don't think we will commit. There is a hint of self-righteousness in it as if we are saying, God may be mildly irritated with my sins, but he's really upset about yours. Jesus never commanded us to love the sinner and hate the sin. 
He commanded us to love our neighbor. Why do you think that is? I think there are at least a, a couple of reasons for it. I think number one is if Jesus had commanded us to love sinners, I think we would become prideful. We'd begin looking down our noses at them. We would begin seeing them as sinners because no sooner do you label somebody a sinner that you can't help but see them as such. It's just like when I picked on Jared a little while ago. Did I not come across as a self-righteous, arrogant individual? Especially when I added, you know, but I'll love you anyway kind of thing. Yeah, I'm such a great person. I'm so spiritual, so loving that despite how terrible you are, I'm going to continue to love you. Smacks of pride. But if we love our neighbor, the way Jesus says we're to love our neighbor, and which, by the way, this is probably the second reason. When Jesus said, love your neighbor, he's already including the fact that they're sinners because everyone's a sinner. So when he says, love your neighbor, he's already telling you to love the sinner, but he wants you to understand you're a sinner too, in need of a savior, in need of grace. And I think that When we love our neighbor and we don't pin the label on them, we begin to see them as real people for whom Christ died and for whom we ought to lay down our lives for. So love the sinner, hate the sin is neither biblical nor beneficial. So here's the question I want us to to answer and and close um, with this morning is, what do we do instead? How do we respond? How do we love people without resorting to these cliches, without turning a blind eye to sin? Well, I don't think it's as difficult as you think, but I'm just going to give you five suggestions, things that I know that we can do, that we have to practice doing if we're going to be good at this. The first is view people as neighbors not as sinners. That's that's not easy. But we need God's heart for people. We need to see past the sins that are being committed, and we need to see them as, as a person, as people created in the image and the likeness of God who may have issues and problems and things we know nothing about, histories that have made them, help, help, help make them who they are. And we have to begin to see them as neighbors, not sinners. I like, I heard this and I really like this. Instead of saying, love the sinner, hate the sin, maybe our mentality ought to be, love the sinner despite our sin. Despite our failings and shortcomings and sinfulness, I will love you. I will seek to love you. It's the idea of pulling the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly enough to pull the speck out of your brother's eye. Second, just Love your neighbor. (laughs) 
I, I, you know, you think of application uh, sometimes as complicated. It's not. We just, you know, as, as Nike says, just do it. Just do it. Love your neighbor. We love because he first loved us. Third, learn to ask good questions. Questions, is, it, it, it's a great way of getting to know people, to hear their story, to gain understanding so that when it comes time to speak, you can speak intelligently and you can speak to the situation without making assumptions in the process. And this, this, is, this, is, this is an art. It doesn't come easy. Let me give you a couple of examples. If someone were to ask you, hey, do you think homosexuality is a sin? You might ask, well, what is your understanding of sin? Get clarity because they may not understand sin the way that you do. If someone asks you, do you think I'm going to hell? You could ask the question, why are you asking me? Do you believe in hell? Or who do you think deserves to go there? See, rather than sprouting off what we want to say, listen to them. And oftentimes, they'll shoot themselves in the foot. Um, I was talking with a few guys this past weekend and just talking about how important asking questions is. It's because most of the time, people are not ready to hear what you have to say because they don't think there's anything wrong with the way they're living, their life, their, their outlook on the world. So um, I always tell people, I, I like to um, kind of picture this as there are two boats out on a lake. You're in one boat, your friend is in another boat, and his boat has a leak. So it's taking on water, but he doesn't recognize it. He doesn't see it. And you know that you're several miles from shore and that if your friend doesn't get out of his boat into your boat, he's going to drown. Now we can sit there and, and we can shout, hey, buddy, your boat is sinking. You know, and he's just going to continue to fish, do whatever, because he's oblivious to the fact that his boat is sinking. Maybe the, the, it's a small leak, but in time, it's going to fill up, and he's going to go, 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 go. So what I suggest doing is you take your boat, you row over to where his boat is, you come alongside, you get a drill, or you get like a, 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 a screwdriver and a hammer, and you start popping more holes into his boat. You, you create more holes so the water comes up more quickly. And you say, well, why would you do that? Because you'll get his attention. He'll see that his boat is now filling up with water. Then when you say to him, hey, I think you might want to get in our boat, what do you think he's going to do? He's not going to stay there. He's going to want to. And so the, I know it's just a weak analogy, but the idea is, is by asking questions, you get people to understand what it is that they really believe. And in the process of doing that, they begin to see that they have a worldview that often contradicts itself. And it doesn't hold water. And once they realize my worldview is lacking they will be more inclined to listen what do you have to say about your world view.
So learn to ask good questions. Fourth, speak the truth, of course, in love. When the time is right to speak, speak the truth. Don't be wishy-washy. Speak with conviction. Don't soft-sell the gospel. Point people to God's Word. I love what Chuck Colson said. He said, orthodoxy often requires us to be hard precisely where the world is soft. And soft where the world is hard. In every way that matters, Christianity is an affront to the world. It is countercultural. Fifth, lastly, pray. Pray for unsaved loved ones. Pray for opportunities to listen and to speak. Pray for wisdom. Pray that God will give you the words at the right time to be said in the right way, in the right spirit. Pray that God will take what is shared and use it to capture your friend's heart. So rather than resorting to a worn out cliche, my suggestion is that we try some of these things, try them all. And if you have other ideas, I would love to hear about them personally. I pray that God will give us wisdom Wisdom to know how to interact with people who don't know Christ, that they might see the truth of the glorious gospel of Christ. Would you help me complete one more sentence? So if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for um, this morning and for your word. Lord, we even thank you for your, for the harsh parts of your word, at least the parts that we would consider harsh, because it highlights our sin and our need for you to save us. And Lord, we thank you that that you sent Jesus to the cross to die for our sins, that we might be forgiven, that we might be restored into fellowship with you. Lord, we thank you for eternal life, for the abundant life, and for all that you have done for us. Lord, when we think about those who don't know you, Lord, we pray that you would set them free, set them free from their sin, set them free to love and to serve you. Lord, set us all free to love our neighbors as ourselves. Help us as we listen to their stories, as we share our story, and most importantly, as we share your story. And may there be many more lovers of Jesus in your kingdom as a result of us doing so. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.